Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film, everybody. So I'm very pleased to welcome my first guest. She is the chief film critic at Metro Newspaper and regularly comments on film across the BBC. It's her third time on Girls on Film. Please welcome Larishka Ivanzada. Thank you very much. Larishka, it's always a pleasure to have you on Girls on Film. Thank you Absolute for Absolute delight. Um, now, I'm very pleased to welcome our second guest. She is the co-founder and co-director of the film website I for Film. She is Amber Wilkinson. Hello, Amber. Hello. Tell us more about I for Film. So, we are a Scottish-based uh, film website, and we cover a whole range of film from kind of mainstream releases right the way through to foreign language film and documentary, short film, places that other websites don't go, basically. Brilliant. And Larishka, you're obviously very busy at Metro, and you're up here on a jury as well, is that right? Yeah, I'm on the documentary film jury, and I can say I've seen like four films today, but I can't tell you what they are, or if they're any good, because that would compromise my jury integrity. Ooh, top secret. <laughs> we are discussing some documentaries today, among other things. But first of all, we're going to talk about some current releases, or things that are coming up quite soon. So our first film is one I'm actually sporting the T-shirt for right now. It's Support the Girls. This stars Regina Hall as the long-suffering manager at a sports bar called Double Whammies. Can you guess what kind of sports bar this is? And this is a day-in-the-life comedy written and directed by Andrew Bujalski, who did Funny Ha Ha. I don't know if anyone saw that one. Let's have a look at a trailer and get a flavour for it. This is a mainstream place. Boobs, bruises, and big screens. Yeah. Although I will say our strategy is moving, you know, sort of away from boobs and into butts. You're not wearing a whole lot of clothes, but it's a family place. Like working at, at Chili's or Applebee's, except the tips are way better. If you know how to work it. But notice how I open my mouth real wide when I laugh, like... <laughs> hey! Hey! Get off the car! It's Alexis. Oh, what are your mainstream? Bar and grill. Please, come here. Please, come here. She's making sick money, though. <laughs> I found this pretty funny and heartwarming. I thought it's quite an interesting contrast to have an essentially sort of feminist film in this absurdly, you know, sexy sport bar setup. And I think it touched on some of the gender politics of middle America. Larissa, did you like it? Yeah, I really liked it, and I actually didn't expect to because this is directed by, say, Andrew Bajalski, who is known as the godfather of mumblecore. So mumblecore is this kind of sort of start. When did it start in the nineties? late 90s, 90s in America and it was basically lots of white angsty New Yorkers kind of mumbling about their sort of problems which didn't amount to anything very much indeed because they were all immensely overprivileged and it's what launched uh, Greta Gerwig on the scene mm. and I found it a little bit tiresome but he's obviously moved out of that comfort zone to be doing this film because it's a completely different film and you wouldn't think that that might work but I think that it really does and it's a very surprising film from that point of view and I think audiences who know his films from that which is quite a small niche indie audience won't be expecting something like this which is starring Regina Hall who we know from films like Girls Trip it's kind of like really bored mainstream appeal and I think it really balances those two sort of genres very well it's like an indie film but it's got a very big I don't know it's got loads of laughs and it's really funny yeah and, and there's not, not a lot of mumbling actually no, not a lot of mumbling. Amber, any funny scenes stand out to you? Did you enjoy it? Quite a lot of cheering, really, rather than mumbling, I would say. <laughs> I mean, for me, Hayley Lee Richardson is hilarious in this movie. I mean, she's just like the sun coming out on a day like today in Edinburgh. All of a sudden, <laughs> everything is warm. You just want to hug her. She was really good in a film called Columbus a year or two ago which didn't get a lot of attention here for some reason. Uh, she's amazing. She just has a real naturalism about the way she is, I think, that just shines through whenever she's on the screen, really. I agree. I think she's brilliant. Columbus is a great shout. People should check that out if they haven't seen it. Larissa, let me ask you, what did you think about the, the gender politics and how it actually tried to deal with the fact that this is 
you know, really lovely mother hen kind of woman trying to protect these girls against basically, you know, licensed sexual harassment. I know, it's brilliantly done. I mean, you can see even from the trailer there, there's, um, yeah, they have these girls coming in on training days. So they have to put on this ridiculous outfit with this tiny little busty top and these microscopic hot pants as their uniform. And they're told, yeah, of course, we all really respect the girls and there's really strong policy on sexual abuse here. But on the other hand, they're all trying to get tips. So they're all kind of basically shaking their chests in the men's faces trying to get tips. And it, just by doing that, it gives a real microcosm of, like, the very difficult nature of negotiating sexual politics and workplace sexuality today. And you kind of cheer on the girls when they're feeling empowered and they're on top of that situation. And then in other circumstances, you know, it's clamped down on very strongly if the men try to touch them. So yeah, it just, I think, gives a really, in a very light way, a very interesting way of looking at that. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting as well because obviously the Regina Hall character is much older. So there's that sense of like the older generation female trying to sort of look out for the younger ones who perhaps aren't aware of just how predatory some of the men who are coming to the bar are. Is there anything you didn't like about it because I'm getting a very positive response here? Anything you'd change? Do you know, I really like this film an awful lot. I can't think of anything that particularly stood out for me as a, a negative. I don't think it's a negative, but I did think it must have been quite easy to fund this film <laughs> because I was like, okay, on the one hand, it's a really interesting kind of feminist take on this sports bar. On the other hand, it's like full of very scantily clad, gorgeous, sexy girls. <laughs> so I guess he, the director, was kind of working the system as well to get his film made. Yeah, you can have your cake and eat it with this film, really, can't you? So who would you recommend it to, Amber? Virtually anybody, actually. I think certainly people in their 20s and 30s, I think, will really get quite a lot out of this. I mean, just the whole sort of sexual politics debate that it has with itself is fascinating. It feels very timely, and it doesn't seem to matter that it's written and directed by a man because it seems to be sensitively done. So Support the Girls is in cinemas from Friday, June the 28th. Marvellous, we've agreed. Let's see if it continues. <laughs> the second film, um, which is coming out soon, is called Penny Slinger. Out of the Shadows. This is a documentary about the British surrealist Penny Slinger, who was big in the 70s and then, quote, disappeared. It's directed by Richard Kovich, and it traces her life from convert schoolgirl to controversial artist. Let's have a look at the trailer. I was born in 1947, given the name Penelope Del Slinger. Her talent was obvious. There was an incredible eye at work. Anything was possible. Sexually provocative. Very empowering, erotic. The usual rules don't apply. When she met Peter Whitehead, that was a similar, very, very free spirit. God, it was fascinating. She was very much ahead of her time. Penny's work has the guts to stand up for itself. She decides on her own destiny. She could have become very, very famous. Penelope Slinger just decided to disappear. Mystery. I think a lot of great documentaries recently have started out with this kind of idea, haven't they? The, the most wonderful person you've never heard of, and you just think, why haven't I heard of them? What happened to them? Why did they disappear? They were searching for Sugar Man, wasn't there? I mean, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say she actually appears in the film, so it's not like there is a great, real disappearing mystery. Larushka, um, what was your response to the film and indeed her art as well? Oh, well, I love this kind of stuff. Absolutely <laughs> I just kind of it. thought you might. <laughs> I know. It's not just because she's got short, dark hair and like that. Um, I mean, I love surrealism. And what was fascinating about this was this is, yeah, it's a feminist vision of surrealism. We know there are very few women surrealists. that Though there are more that you're becoming aware of. Lots of people know Leonora Carrington. At the moment, there's a... I think it's just finishing in, in London at the Tate. There's an exhibition of Dorothea Tanning. So I think at this time, more and more women artists are being discovered, as it were, or rediscovered. What's interesting about Penny Slinger as well is she was obviously really famous at the time, mainly, I think, because she was quite gorgeous. She was a model, and she was known as the kind of it girl of art. Most of her work seemed to involve herself mainly naked, which probably helped her get a bit of mainstream appeal. But what I really liked, I think probably my favourite line in this film, is where she goes, I wanted to be my own muse. And I thought that was really interesting, because normally when you see... Yeah, films about, it's all about the male artist, and then it'll be like, oh, and his muse was so-and-so. And she was like, no, I am going to be my own muse. I'm objectifying myself as a subject. And I thought that was really, that was really fascinating. Amber, were there any favourite moments for you? Because there are many fascinating stories and kind of chapters in her life in this. Yeah, I mean, she has had a really fascinating life in her own way, although I kind of wanted to know what happened to her afterwards. I felt like... 
the director was so in love with her at the time when she was this art it girl that he almost didn't want to kind of follow up on, on where she went. And I thought, oh, in a way, that's playing into her becoming invisible in a sense. And I would have liked to have seen maybe something of what she'd done since then because presumably she is producing something well i read online that she's actually written lots of books quite successfully and that wasn't really referenced they did seem to want to retain this enigma yes and i felt as well that he didn't really want to go into the kind of shadowy places too far you know he wanted to bring her out of the shadows in sense of making her more well-known, but there's some quite dark parts of this documentary where they talk about some of the collectives of the 70s that kind of had problems with mental health issues and things like that, and I really felt like he was pulling away from digging around with that somehow, perhaps because she was involved and, and didn't want to. Nariska, what did you think about that? Did you feel there was anything missing? Oh, loads missing. I mean, right. there's definitely a lot of mystery to be explained. It felt like a documentary. I, I thought she as a subject was fascinating. The documentary felt sort of too long and too short in that it just kind of spun out a lot. It kind of just took like the 10 years of her career that, that, that was already documented and then didn't continue from the 70s. I mean, she's still making art today and it just kind of goes, oh yeah, and then she moved to the Caribbean and kind of fell off the art scene. And you're like, well, what happened then? What happened then? But yeah, I did feel like she disappeared and then, as you say, in about like the next scene she appears on screen and you're like well she didn't disappear very far if you're interviewing her now did she really so um yeah it sort of felt quite flawed as a documentary but still a fascinating subject yeah I think I thought emotionally I really liked it because I was just so fascinated by her and all the talking heads they had some great characters to talk about her don't they all the all the sort of guys that she used to run around with all these filmmakers and the very bohemian artists that yeah and she's got such a positive energy as well I mean she's a really good documentary subject in that when she appears you're like oh yeah this woman is here at one point in that she says I just wanted to explore and go to the places that they didn't want me to go well she's kind of talking about her parents there but essentially that seems to have been her life that she just you know wanted to get out there and just do something different and do it her own way do you think she's a feminist I don't think she would say she was a feminist. I mean, you know, that's a very interesting definition. And I do think people of her age often attach a certain connotation, a very specific type of feminism, this kind of burn your bra kind of notion to it. I know my mum was always, oh, you know, she hated that idea of the word, but she was very feminist in the, in the sense of it. Well, I mean, her art was very, very female-centric. I mean, she was... When you watch the film, if you watch the film, which I, I do recommend you do, she was part of all these kind of quite radical feminist collectives making this kind of crazy feminist theatre art. I mean, it's a wonderful portrait of the scene at the time. And, you know, she has a fascinating style and glamour. And they just sort of throw out these things like, oh, yeah, when we were with Mick Jagger on holiday, you're like, tell us more about that as well. <laughs> but, yeah, she lived in this flat in off the King's Road with her boyfriend, who's also an artist who's in the film, and they had falcons. You know, it's that kind of quite groovy scene that they're involved in. But, yeah, that very sort of feminist spare rib type time she was involved in all that that sort of side of things as well so i think despite its flaws we're saying we would recommend it certainly i would okay so pingy singer is out on friday june 28th now we're moving on to some films that are showing here at edinburgh international film festival the first one is the souvenir which is a joanna hogg film so it's the latest film from the British director who made Archipelago. It stars Honor Swinton Byrne as a film student who meets an enigmatic charmer played by Tom Burke. Let's have a look at a trailer. So I'm trying to work out where you two tessellate here. How, what, why, when. Can you lend me a couple of quid? Yeah, sure. Not me. Can I borrow some money? Please. More money? Yes. Oh. You're too nice. You need to properly get aggressive. Don't lie, Anthony. If you don't want to know, I do then want to don't know. ask. Stop torturing yourself. I'm not. Stop inviting me to torture you. That's the souvenir. Um, I feel that trailer doesn't actually give you an idea of the tone of the film because I don't know who's seen a lot of Joanne Hogg films. They do tend to be sort of fly-on-the-wall observational but also rather mannered. Larishka, how would you describe her style? I think it would be difficult to give a sense of her style from a trailer because <laughs> a lot of it is very still shots, very composed, 
very slow, very distant. I mean, I, I love her films. I think they're, they're wonderful, but they are very art films. It's like watching, she's almost like a painter of film, I think. She's a fantastic filmmaker but she's not to everyone's taste. Yeah, I've got to say, I've tried and tried because I feel like I really should like Joanna Hug. But I watch these films and I, and I get quite frustrated with the style. I thought the story was interesting, but I don't find that sort of style believable. And I need to believe the relationships, I need to believe in the conversations. And it seems to me, talking about mumblecore, that they're just sort of muttering and mumbling, not in the way that people actually speak. And that gets in the way of my enjoyment. I'm afraid I'm uh, with the Rushka <laughs> here. I mean, I love the way that she uses architectural spaces. There's something about the way that she places people in the frame that gives you a sense of their sort of internal psychological drama, really. And particular with the Honor uh, Swinton Byrne character here, you do get a real sense of sort of how... I want to say sort of lost that she is, except that, of course, she's still finding herself because she's very young. And part of the thing of this film is that we're always sort of half a step ahead of her psychologically. We can sort of see that this man in her life is kind of toxic <laughs> before she sees it herself. And I think we've maybe all been there when we were younger, you know, with somebody that perhaps we shouldn't have been with. I agree with you about the cinematography and the composition, absolutely. And, of course, this must be very autobiographical. I mean, Lushka, can you tell us much about that? Because she's, she's at film school when she's Yeah, she's at character. film school in the mid-80s. I have to say that the 80s period detail in this film I loved because it's so subtle. It's not like everyone's like boogieing on down to Duran Duran in their ruffled skirts. <laughs> you, you can almost not tell what period it's from initially, especially because she does live in this very establishment sort of timeless bubble where everyone's still wearing their cords and their loafers and still wearing the same slony things that every Sloan has worn for the last hundred years. But yeah, it's a portrait of a portrait of a young artist, essentially, this film. Um, it's about her going to film school, and it's about her finding her voice as a female filmmaker. And there are lots of men around, particularly the older men who run the film school, who are basically just mansplaining everything to her and belittling her the whole time and making her feel very small. But equally, she is very, she's an incredibly naive character, and she does go in going, I want to make a film about this, yes, this teenager from Sunderland in the docks. And everyone's like, ah seems a little bit different from your own experience of life. It's interesting you talking about the mansplaining. I've noted down a quote when um, a certain man advises her with her filmmaking, don't be worthy, be arrogant. And I, and I like the way that this film sort of touches on, as you say, she is an insecure woman. And it is very unusual to see a film that centres around a woman like that and it's not requiring her to be transformed. You know. No, I mean, people are trying to shape her the whole time, you know, mm. in a way, her mother shapes her one way, and then she goes with this loose guy, and he's sort of shaping her, literally dressing her at one point as well. I mean, there's a sort of shades of the kind of phantom thread kind of idea going on as well. But as far as the kind of autobiographical element is, it's one of those things, it's almost so detailed that it, it makes it more poignant and more universal because it's obviously based on some sort of truth about her. But it is a very kind of upper-middle-class point of view and not everybody will get on with that, I don't think. Well, I mean, it does seem like she's listened to the right-what-you-know adage. <laughs> um, but will it, does it appeal to people that don't fall into that demographic? Well, I think that, you know, that's the power of filmmaking, isn't it, I, I'd, I'd say. But, yeah, I mean, that can put off some people. I, I think Phantom Fred is a, is a really good touchstone here. I think if you like Phantom Fred, you'll probably like this. And also, I think Honor Swinton Burns' performance. And she's Tilda Swinton's daughter. She's Tilda Swinton's yes. daughter, and this is her first, this is her debut role. Apparently, when they were trying to cast the film, cast that lead role, Joanna Hogg and Tilda Swinton are friends. They, they started filmmaking together um, with the filmmaker Derek Jarman in the 80s. And apparently, they were like, who are we going to cast? Who are we going to cast? And saw all these young actresses, and suddenly, like just before the shoot they were like oh we could cast your daughter that would be a brilliant idea and I think she's absolutely wonderful in this role I think she's completely captivating she really has that kind of she almost looks like a portrait she's got this sort of very heavy lidded look sort of very soft as you say like she's still forming on screen I mean she's completely captivating the camera loves her, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah and, and we should also say Tom Burke is amazing in this movie. Yeah. He reminded me of that kind of louche, kind of Rupert Everett kind of Hugh Grant sort of role almost. Rupert Everett more, that kind of sort of really white boy. But you kind of love him at the same time, you know? 
Yeah, no, he is great. The performances are very good. I will concede that. Um, I think if, if you like Hogg's work, you'll like this. If you don't, you won't. Um, so the souvenir is EIFF 24th and 26th of June, and it's on general release from Friday the 30th of August. Now, our next film is Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. It is a documentary about the relationship between the writer and singer Leonard Cohen and his Norwegian muse, Marianne Illen. They met on the Greek island of Idra in 1960. It's part of another Bohemian community. We're so Bohemian today. And there they met the filmmaker Nick Bremerfield, who had a bit of a fling with Marianne and then decided, latterly, to make a film about her. Let's have a look at the trailer. The woman who inspired the songwriter and poet Leonard Cohen to write some of his best-known work has died. Dearest Marianne, I'm just a little behind you, close enough to take your hand. When this love letter came from Leonard, I think she felt that it was all completed. Poets, they're just elusive creatures who are married to their muse. It was a love story which had 50 chapters without being together. That trailer does give you a sense of the film. Um, did you think Nick Bruford did a good job on this, Amber? Well, I do have a slight problem in that Nick always does stay in the picture. It's kind of Marianne and Leonard and Nick because <laughs> he makes sure that we know very, very early on that, yes, he too had a relationship with Marianne. And in a way, that is all right to a degree, but then partway through the film, he returns to Nick and Marianne and you just say, oh, you know what, Nate? I'm not really interested in this bit because lots of other things in the film are very interesting about this island of Hydra and the sea, a bit like the Penny Slinger scene, the scene that was happening there, and it has quite a lot to say about that. Larushka, what did you think? Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I actually didn't mind the Nick Broomfield insertion into the film because I thought it did make it... Um, it made it more, give it a personal angle, and also I think that it made the made him concentrate on Marianne a lot more. And I was worried about going into this film that obviously Leonard Cohen is the famous one, Marianne the Muse, as we were talking about with Penny mm. Slinger, and that it would be very skewed in Leonard Cohen's favour. And obviously it is it is slightly, you know, but he does really care about Marianne, and he makes her properly you know, an equal subject of this documentary in a way that I don't think he would have if he hadn't had that personal connection because, as you probably say, that makes it more about him, actually, by kind of one remove. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. I think sometimes he makes it all about him in the films, but you don't see him on camera very much in this, and I think it was highly relevant to the story. It would be a bit weird if he made a story about his ex-lover and didn't mention that in his side of filmmaking. And I think it also does bring, yeah, a real poignancy. I mean, I don't know about you, I was really tearing up in moments of this oh, yeah, film. I just watched it this afternoon, and that was on the way here. I was like, oh. Yeah, it's very moving. It took me yeah, about really half an hour to recover. It's, it's pretty, can't, yeah. can't say what the end is, but yeah. Yeah. It, is, it is a moving film. I mean, I'm being a little bit flippant, really, but because it is a very moving film. And I think it has something quite interesting to say about the effect of open marriages on children as a sort of byproduct of what was happening at the time. You know, it's not just focused on the love story, although that's in there. It does take a lot in, doesn't it? Because there's a little bit about music and composition and, and fame. But yes, you're right, there's a lot about that community living and the pros and cons of that. But I thought it was quite broad-minded in the sense that it was looking at these open relationships, but also seeing how they could be lasting in their own way. Larushka, I want to ask you about the talking heads, because I have a favourite, which was Aviva Leighton, you know, the, the wife oh, of yeah, Irving. she's brilliant. She's <laughs> absolutely hilarious. She just said, really great writers have to have edibly mad mothers. I know, but she also said, um, if you're a poet or a filmmaker, you kind of have a licence to be this terrible person, and women will just throw themselves at your feet, kind of almost on that basis, because you're a bad boy. And I thought that was, again, lightly touched upon, but it did raise this whole issue, which I think has become more of an issue these days, of just because you're an artist does not mean you have to behave like a bad human being. Though, actually, Leonard Cohen does come across as a very good human being for a lot of the time in this film. Yeah, I mean, I do think the film sags a little bit once their relationship ends, because then it becomes a bit of a ramble through kind of Leonard Cohen's career to a degree. And Marianne, although he does keep her in mind, is still, she does get sort of relegated at that point a little bit. I mean, it's not really Broomfield's fault, to be fair, because obviously she's much less documented than, than Leonard yeah. Cohen is, you yeah. know. The other thing that's really nice about this is there's some 
lovely footage that was shot by a documentarian called D.A. Pennybaker in this. And uh, it's really worth seeing that. It's beautiful. So I think this is worth telling people to go and see this. Do yeah, we agree? Like so. so it's showing here on the 29th and 30th of June. And it's on general release in the UK on Friday, 26th of July. Now, next, I'm going to ask my lovely film critics to move up because I have two wonderful industry guests coming onto the stage. Tonight is the European premiere of a film called The Grizzlies, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the stage the director, Miranda de Pensier, and the star, Anna Lam. <laughs> welcome, Anna. Welcome, Miranda. Congratulations on the, such, a, such a heartwarming film. And it's a true story. Can you tell us more about the true story? So this film takes place in the Canadian Arctic. It's the true story of a group of kids struggling with a lot of trauma whose lives are transformed through sport. You know, there's a legacy of colonialism going on all over the planet. We're going through reconciliation and decolonization um, really actively in Canada right now. So this is really an example of what can happen in many communities when the kids are given the platform to be able to run and develop and build programs for themselves. That's really what the story is about. It's getting rid of this whole white savior myth that any one person can come up and help a community. It's gotta come from within. When you grow up across Canada on reservations, you can't be sheltered from trauma. You can't be sheltered from the lasting effects of residential schools. You can't not witness what has been forced upon your people. And um, really, going through this movie, it was a lot of realization of you know what my mom had been through, what my mother's family had been through, why so many issues such as substance abuse or domestic violence are so prevalent amongst the Inuit community or really indigenous communities in general. Um, tell me, what were the challenges in getting this film actually made? Because it's never easy doing, it, <laughs> doing an indie film. I mean, uh, it was a 10-year process to get wow. this movie made. And it, it took a long time to get the script right. When I first worked, uh, started working on the film, I was attracted to the material um, because it was about how sports can change lives. And I had suffered from depression in high school, so um, sports had been really important to me, had really had a profound effect on me um, as a young person. Um, but then when I went up to the Arctic for the first time to get the life rights of the kids, thinking, oh, this is just kind of like an inner city community in the south, or in a city, I I'm from Toronto, I get up there and I went, holy, can I swear? Say it. <laughs> Shit. What the hell is going on? This is my country. The poverty, the violence, the extreme horror of what we've done to our indigenous, sorry, I'm going to start crying, but people like it. You read things, but I couldn't believe it was today. And so... That became a huge learning curve for me. So it became a much bigger project, and I had to find indigenous partners. And then the script changed because we would do workshops to find our cast. And it was a journey of really development while we were raising the financing and, of course, trying to shoot a movie in the Arctic, which on its own was a challenge. <laughs> and Anna, tell me a bit about your background as an actress and how you came to be involved. So, as for background, absolutely none. Um, this was my first film. The only time I'd ever done acting was in the maybe month and a half that I had in my drama class before my drama teacher gave me this um, piece of paper that was advertising you know, auditions for this workshop for the Grizzlies. And so I was like, okay. My drama teacher wanted me to go for it, so I was like, fine, I'll try it. And really almost didn't go, but um, did the audition, got into the workshop, and through the workshop, you know, we did a lot of cultural events, so we did, you know, practicing throat singing, we did Greenlandic face mask dancing, all these sorts of cultural practices that we may not get to do on the day-to-day -day because it's still in a very long process of reclamation and not everybody really knows how to participate, but 
by the end of the week, there was this really strong sense of pride. There was this connection to the movie. And you know, towards the end of the week, Miranda had said, we can audition if we want to, but if we don't, that's fine. You know, there was, what, 60 of us? I would I just mentioned we, we auditioned 600 kids all over the Arctic Circle. We wanted every kid in the Arctic the chance to audition. And then from that, we flew 60 kids in a series of workshops. Which is a huge investment in the North to fly 60 kids. Um, <laughs> even just one three-hour flight from uh, my hometown, Ekalui, to Ottawa is like, what, sixteen to $1,800. Yeah. So... Um, it was a huge investment into the movie, but by the end of the week, we all felt so welcomed and so connected and so open to what this movie had done for us and as a form of healing. So that, that was really my only background. You know, we had a couple days with an acting coach named Millie Hutton, who we so grateful. We, I don't think I could have done it. And you are her. terrific in the film, may I say. Mm -hmm. You're Thank so you. great. What a find. Miranda, were there any particular moments of filming? You, we talked about challenges, but you know, you, you're filming with young people, you're filming with a dog, you're filming in an extreme environment. What could possibly go wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got all the things you're not supposed to do on your first. <laughs> this is my directorial debut. As I said, I've been a producer for a long time, but my first time directing. So, yeah, we had stunts, fights, dogs, weather, a uh, number of the characters speak Anuktitut, so foreign language, and majority of the actors had never acted before. But it was such a community, and I think that was really the biggest part of it. We wanted to make sure that the experience was also not impeding more on a bunch of Southerners coming up to an indigenous community and doing more damage. So. Part of what we did with my Inuit co-producers was make sure that every aspect of the journey, we had a mentee in every single department so that there was a local person training and we were teaching knowledge. So it became much more than just making a film. Such a positive film in many ways. Thing. What kind of responses have you had? It's been amazing. You know, I'm an Anna can talk about the North. We raised a quarter of a million dollars to screen the movie in indigenous communities and we're entering our eighth week. We've been number one at the Canadian box office for eight weeks, which is unheard wow. of for an English-Canadian film. Congratulations. So, really um, so when we talk about, say, the effects of the movie. Mm, responses from responses, people, yeah. It really depends on who you're talking about. So in the North, you know, Inuit are really feeling represented where they normally aren't and where their representation is normally negative. It's a strong feeling of, wow, I see my life on a screen. I see, obviously, the trauma, but I also see the hope and the resilience and the strength. And I really feel connected to that. And now I have more hope and more strength and more resilience and belief that, you know, if this group of kids that have faced every trauma can get through this and become stronger, so can I. And one thing that has stuck with me for weeks and weeks and weeks was when my mom saw it. And you know, my mom was, her family was a part of the high Arctic relocations and which is when Inuit were taken and lied to by the Canadian government and forced to the furthest North Island in Canada to claim sovereignty so that Russia or the States could not claim that land. She had told me this movie was a very healing experience for her and I could not imagine a better reaction or a better result to come from it. But also um, other perspectives, such as people from the South or anyone who is not indigenous, is this movie really changed my perspective on what it means to be indigenous in Canada and what indigenous people and Inuit people really have had to go through. And unfortunately, it doesn't really get talked about it is often swept under the rug in Canada, which the conversation is being opened up and talked about more, but there still are so many stereotypes and still so many people buy into the idea that Indigenous people, you know, live off Canadian taxpayers' money or they're all, you know, alcoholics. And it's really appalling, but a lot of people are seeing this movie and they're like, I never would have known that before. Thank you for showing reality 
and thank you for making me more compassionate because of it. Well, that's amazing. How wonderful. Congratulations again to you both. Best of luck for the premiere tonight. And are we going to see it in the UK later in the year, we hope? Um, uh, we're, we're working. We're, we're <laughs> just starting to talk. If you, you know, are interested, come talk to us. Um, I just wanted to mention that we've won a number of awards, um, including the Directors Guild of Canada Award, and Anna was nominated for the equivalent of our Canadian Oscar, the Canadian Screen Award. So. Wow. Round of applause for that. Congratulations to you both. Thank you both so much for joining Girls on Film. Thank you. Let's get to our regular section, which is the Bechdel test section. So I'm going to start with Amber, and I'm going to ask you to give us your fail first. What is this? Uh, it's Beautiful Boy. Well, I mean, the clue is there in the title. Right? <laughs> uh, so it's based on journalist David Sheff's Beautiful Boy, a father's journey through his son's addiction, and his son Nick's book, Tweak, which also sort of charts this same relationship. And uh, it's a story about addiction and relapse, really. And inevitably, the focus is on the men, and the women get very short shrift throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's weird because uh, the director, Felix van Gernigen, he had an earlier film called Broken Circle Breakdown, which had a great female role at the heart of it. But this one, it has um, Mara Thierry in it as uh, David's second wife and Amy Ryan as the first wife. And they just kind of just stand in the shadow. And worse still, Caitlin Deaver, who you might have seen in Booksmart very recently, she plays the girlfriend of Nick at one point, and she just sort of seems to fall in thrall to him for no apparent reason at all. There's just no character development, Paul Love. So, yeah, I can't say it passes. So that's a definite fail from you. And, and you're not a fan of the film in general, I'm getting. No, I think the biggest problem is uh, the director's kind of addicted to music so he starts from this place of musical high emotion and he just keeps on going, you know, till he ODs on it virtually by the end. It's, yeah. Ruska, were you a fan of this film? I think you saw it, didn't you? you saw it? Um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a massive fan. Yeah. I mean, I agree that it's very weird how the mothers are sidelined in a story which presumably is, you know, they were pretty involved in because their child was addicted to meth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, that, that kind of raises that sort of interesting... Um, Amber, what did you choose for your pass? Oh, yes, well, I had the boy, so I'm going for the girl. <laughs> I've gone for uh, Girlhood by Celine Schammer. In fact, I could have picked any of her films, really, because they're not just kind of highlighting women. They're basically all about female experience of identity and self-determination, and this one is no exception, really. I mean, what I like about her is she sort of views female identity and sexuality as kind of a continuum rather than a lot of little boxes. So it's fine for her characters to sort of try different identities on for size almost, to move around in a film. Um, and I find that quite, you know, empowering and, and interesting. This, oh, sorry, I should tell you, it's the story of a teenager and she lives in the kind of high-rise housing scheme in Paris and basically through the course of the film she is coming of age, I suppose you'd say. It's a terrific film, great choice. And I um, saw Céline Chama's new film Portrait of a Jeune Fille in Cannes and then we reviewed it in our Cannes episode if you want to listen. And my gosh, it's amazing. Oh, Can't my wait. word. It's one of the best films I've seen in a very long time. So, great choice. Um, Larushka, let's speak to you now about your fail. What did you choose um, that, that failed the Bechdel test? Um, I chose a recent film which is called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, which is a Sky uh, cinema film, so it's probably on Sky somewhere still, which is about Ted Bundy. So, obviously, probably unlikely to pass the Bechdel test and be a <laughs> feminist masterpiece because it's about a serial killer who raped and mutilated over 30 women in the 1970s in the States. However, I thought it was worth talking about because the reason they sort of justify raking over Ted Bundy yet again, and there have been many films and documentaries and there's a whole Netflix series made about him by the same director as this film, wow. <laughs> is that they're sort of justifying it by saying it's told from the point of view of his former girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, and based on her book. She's played by Lily Collins in the film. Zac Efron gives a sort of rather fabulous performance as Ted Bundy, very charismatic, because the appeal of Ted Bundy was that he was this very you know, attractive serial killer that his girlfriend didn't supposedly suspect that he was out killing all these women. The charming sociopath, yeah. The charming sociopath. Yeah. But given that it's meant to be based on her story, 
Uh, Lily Collins's character is just like barely there and she is given very little to do. Her character is barely sketched in and it's completely dominated by Efron. So yeah, it's a big fail from my point of view because you're just like, hmm, you're trying to justify it on this basis but they're yeah. not really following through. And not all our passes pass with flying colours, and I think that's the case with your choice for the pass. Is that right? Well, I was sort of thinking of a recent film, and I've chosen Yesterday, which is, I think it's premiering here tomorrow, isn't it? Mm. I think. Indeed. So this is the new Danny Boyle, Richard Curtis film. Richard Curtis, of course, for Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, etc., etc. This is his film Yesterday. It's about a, a struggling musician who wakes up in a world he's knocked, knocked over by a bus and wakes up to find that everybody in the world's forgotten all the Beatles songs except him. Hmm great opportunity of what he's going to do with his uh, musical career from then on. And his girlfriend, who is the girl in the film, is played by Lily James. It's another, another Lily. Yep. And, yeah, she's quite an infuriating character. She's almost manic pixie dream girl, isn't she? Yes. As a stereotype. She's just this kind of like, hi. And she is... Uh, she, they were, That's a very were, good impression. Thanks. Uh, they're, they're meant to be both teachers together, but he, you know, he has his dream played by Himesh Patel, who's the, the lead character in the film. You might know from EastEnders. His dream is to be a musician. She just supports his dream by endlessly driving him everywhere because she has this, like, secret crush on him. And he doesn't see that she's got this amazing crush on him or that she is ravishingly beautiful and Lily he James. He must be completely blind. It's ridiculous, <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, I was struggling to think, did it pass? And I thought it must do because luckily nowadays filmmakers are very aware of the Bechdel test and know that there has to be a token scene uh, in which it does pass. And so I was talking to Anna about it and you, you pointed yeah, out Yeah, I think the there's scene. a scene, and so um, Kate McKinnon plays the kind of ruthless manager and she hires a stylist who's her friend and they talk about clothes. So there you go. <laughs> Just, just scrapes through. Yeah, so if you yeah. see it, maybe there'll be another scene and you can let us all know about it. But yeah, they're, they're the only ones that I can As a side remember. note, though, progressive casting Himish Patel in the yeah, lead. Yeah, in this. a Richard Curtis yeah, film. Yeah, so this is pretty oh. amazing. And there are, there are good things about this film. Yeah, I really yeah. loved it. I'm not yeah. going to put you off. No, it's, it's very fun, enjoyable. Not yeah. a feminist masterpiece, but... Not a feminist masterpiece. Very, very Neither is the one I've chosen for my fail. It will shock you to learn. It's Casino Royale. I went to Secret Cinema the other day in London. I can't say anything about the location because it's secret. Um, but it was a spectacular night out. I have to say they really go to town. Everything is very lavish and you're immersed in this world. But it, watching the film made me realise how far we've come that we're now having conversations about Phoebe Waller-Bridge making the new Bond film. But in 2006, this was Daniel Craig's first Bond film. And I think it was meant to be a little bit more progressive. I mean, that was the general idea. And we had Eva Green as Vesper Lind, who is more independent, sort of talks back to Bond. Um, but he's still horribly patronising to her in a way that is deeply unattractive. I mean, he's meant to be less evolved in this one. But, you know, he has lines like, he says, you're not my type. And she goes, because I have half a brain. He goes, no, because you're single. So, yeah. But they had Judy Dench as M. Fantastic. But I thought it was really interesting to revisit and to think, actually, that feels relatively recent, but actually a lot of people were sort of raising their eyebrows and the screen and going, okay, inappropriate. But it's interesting to revisit these things. Now, my pass, I've gone for Nanette and Bonnie, which is a 1996 film by Claire Denis, who's currently got high life in cinemas. It's a raw, sensual drama about a pregnant teen who moves in with her brother. It's typically intense Claire Denis kind of film. It's a controversial pass because there is a female doctor who does have a conversation with the girl, but the doctor doesn't have a name. But the thing with Claire Denis films is that a lot of the incidental characters don't have names. So they're very intense they're very sort of focused on the central characters and I think this has a lot to say about problematic masculinity as well and it's sort of challenging and sexual and Vincent Gallo's in it that's interesting so I would recommend checking out Nanette Bommy if you are a Claire Denis fan and you want to see some of her earlier work there's actually a season of Claire Denis films streaming on the service Mubi at the moment including Beaudrevi and White Material and we have a special offer on Girls on Film if you want to see that for free um, you get a free month's worth of cinema plus free cinema tickets by going to movie.com slash girls on film so check that out now we're going to have a little Q&A with the audience the lovely Laura is going to come around and uh, take your questions with the mic so please put your hand up and wait for it to come to you thank you I'm um, sorry the first man speaking I feel <laughs> I shouldn't really be imposing but um, <laughs> last night at the opening ceremony we were told that this year's Edinburgh lineup has 43% female-directed films, which feels like quite big progress for them. As critics who attend a lot of film festivals, do you see that as a big deal, and do you think it compares positively to what other festivals are doing? 
Well, I think the direction of travel is good, finally, perhaps. I think there's been a few false starts about this whole female directorial representation thing. Particularly, we're finally starting to get a bit of a feedback loop, I think, between festival showing and then getting a second film made because there's been a big problem in the past where women have got one film into a festival and you know if it's not been stratospherically successful often they haven't been able to mount that second film but a lot of funds now are starting to look at trying to support that second film and I think that's vitally important because Women need to be allowed to fail as well as succeed and to keep making a movie if they fail. Lots of men do this, and that's how they get better. And the only way that women are going to get that same opportunity is if they're also allowed to occasionally fail, I think. Bravo. Well said, Amber. Absolutely right. I mean, I think what I'm encouraged by is that we are seeing a lot more talk about this and a lot more festivals feeling obliged to actually state the statistics now. And I was very pleased to be in Cannes last year when the director of Cannes Film Festival was required, or agreed rather grudgingly, um, to make a pledge towards greater gender parity. And we have started to see some gradual results from that. And there's other you know, film festivals like Toronto which are really shouting about it and really putting their money where their mouth is. So hopeful that things are changing, but Amber is absolutely right. You've got to tackle it the grassroots level as well. Um, when it comes to being kind of a feminist critic, I was just wondering what your opinion is on celebrating the intention of things sometimes over the quality and how often you find yourself being forgiving of certain things a film you may not enjoy in the quality when it has a feminist intention or it's made by a woman and stuff like that. That's such a good question, actually, because the current episode, which we did in home in Manchester, we reviewed Late Night, which I think I personally felt the intention was much more impressive than the actual execution, even though it's the Emma Thompson one where she plays a show host, and, and it is um, very woke in many ways, and it, and it tackles a lot of great issues, but I didn't think it was hands down hilarious. But we have to make these films, and you have to be allowed to not do them brilliantly, as Am says. What do you think, Mushka? Every time I see the poster for Late Night, I feel guilty I only gave it three stars. <laughs> so, yes, I, I think that is a really good question, and it, it is something that I think about a lot. I do try and uh, review films by women in Metro, but calling out films that have failed, especially blockbusters, on their um, yeah, lack of feminist credentials, and I find myself doing that quite a lot um, and getting quite a lot of abuse for it sometimes on Twitter for being so feminist in a mainstream paper but um, Captain Marvel and things like that it's just like oh just because it's Captain Marvel you've given it like four stars or whatever it is that kind of thing but yeah I think I think it's also championing the ethos of blockbusters like that where you do feel really proud to see yourself represented on screen and I think I think we all remember as critics seeing Wonder Woman for the first time and I think almost every film critic that saw Wonder Woman cried at the beginning of the screening just from seeing themselves, you know, seeing so many women on screen at the same time in a superhero film. And I think as a female film critic, you respond to that in a different way than a man watching it would. You know, for a man, they're just like, yeah, whatever, it's just a scene with lots of women in and all the women are like, this is such a significant moment for me. So it's just acknowledging that moment, I often do. Yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, the idea of being able to fail with a film, equally, it's important to be rigorous with criticism. And if a film doesn't stand up, then it doesn't stand up, whether it's made by a woman with great intentions or a man with terrible intentions. I mean, it has to stand and be counted along with the rest of them. I mean, this isn't about giving women some sort of free ride or pass or anything. It's about giving an equal platform to, you know, let their voice be heard and assessed like anything else, really. Thank you. Um, did you say it was 43%? That's what well, it should be 50%, in my opinion, seeing as we are half the population. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, at the beginning you showed a couple of documentaries which were directed by men, and I wanted to know what the panel thought about men telling women's stories, because men have told women's stories for the whole of history, and uh, I think it's time we started telling our own. So I wondered what you thought of that. I think I'd always, uh, you know, given the job that I do and the podcasts I do, I'd, I'd be happier if those films were directed by a woman. But you, again, if a man's done a good job, then who's going to deny someone the right to do that? Uh, you know, 
Yeah, I definitely don't want to just see women telling women's stories, otherwise we'll never get anywhere. I want to see women telling men's stories. That's kind of interesting to me, you know. Let's see some women doing documentaries about guys or whatever. You know, that's what it's about to me is sort of trying just to have lots of voices talking about lots of subjects so that we get different lenses on, on things. Thank you. Um, just drawing on Amber's point about women making films about men, how effectively does the panel think that women can tell stories about men and especially toxic masculinity mm -hmm. um, and fragile masculinity because it seems that women can effectively make stories about women because they can see the same perspective. So mm -hmm. I was just wondering what you thought about women making stories about um, toxic masculinity. I think we've seen quite a lot of it. Actually, a really good example is the film The Brink, which was directed by Alison Clayman, who we interviewed um, when she came to Sundance London for Girls on Film. We were talking about what it takes to be a great documentarian, and she said a lot of empathy and understanding, but also um, the ability to be underestimated. And he underestimated this incredible woman who was just quietly sitting there and taking it all in, really catching him out. But I think a lot of um, women's films deal with problematic masculinity actually the grizzlies um touches on that Catherine bigelow's made a career out of that i'd say um uh mary heron with the american psycho i think yeah historically women have actually done that and that's probably because they're men's stories i mean if you saw a Catherine bigelow film you'd think of it actually as sort of classic male story and that happened to be the one that won the first female director an oscar yeah i suspect that might be why we get so much for but yeah i think i mean I don't see why women can't tackle any aspect of the male psyche, just as I have no problem with a man uh, having a go at tackling, you know, a woman's story. It, it's, uh, it's fine. You just have to take care with it, I guess. Thank you. We've got time for maybe one more question. Anyone, Bernie, tell us something? Hi. Um, I have a question about the Bechdel test. So you said a film barely passed, and I mm. often find that with films that maybe there are two women and they have names and they have a conversation, but... It can be very stereotypical or even there's sexism layered in there. So I wondered if you had a requirement that you could add to the test to kind of challenge a film more on its gender approach, what, what your requirements would be. Yeah, there, there is um, uh, something called the F rating, and films can be F rated, so I believe they have to be... I mean, this is more about the process of making it as well, so it's sort of written and directed and, you know, depicting strong women, but I think that's something we're talking about. I'm going to get the creator of that on here at some point because I think that's probably more of an, an efficient feminist test. We like to do the better one because it's a sort of a jokey one which, are, you know, interesting conversations from, arise from. I mean, we've talked in, in episode two, didn't we, about alternative tests... Yeah, there's ethnic tests and sort of there's the one about um, Muslims and depicting them and making, you know, there are sort of various criteria like not a terrorist, not a repressed woman. All I would say is about the death del test is like given so how, how so few films passed or even like films that are made by very, you know, liberal, well-intentioned men don't pass the test. I think sadly there's not the time to add an additional layer to this because films are barely passing on this basis anyway but hopefully we'll get to the point where it becomes a bit more sophisticated well uh, you have just been such a great crew up here thank you so much i want to say thank you to larishka Ivanzada. big round of applause please thank you to amber wilkinson miranda de pensier and to anna lamb thank you thank you all for being girls on film thank you Many thanks for listening to this episode of Girls on Film. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends. And also you can follow me at Anna Smith Journo on Twitter and Instagram. Girls on Film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archbold and Jane Long. Feel the sisterhood growing stronger. Sisterhood, woo!